as we looked at last week, Jesus is in a period, a final period of ministry. If you divide Jesus' ministry into three sections, you have a period of obscurity where Jesus is, for the most part, an unknown quantity, followed by a period of popularity, which is where Jesus is having multitudes flock to hear him speak, to watch him perform miracles, to see lives transformed, followed by a third period known as a period of opposition. As we looked at, Jesus is in the midst of what I would call a battle royale with the religious establishment. Jesus is butting heads with the religious leaders of Judaism. And as we looked at in last week's Bible study, in so many ways, the essence of the conflict was petty and also somewhat silly. I mean, really, when you think about the source of the religious leaders' conflict with Jesus, the source of their consternation, you kind of can't help but A, maybe chuckle, and then B, kind of just think, this is ridiculous. Within two chapters of observing Jesus' ministry, we see him miraculously feeding the multitude. Somewhere between ten to 20,000 people, Jesus takes a few loaves of bread, a couple fish, and he feeds the multitude. We see Jesus supernaturally walking on water. We see him demonstrating power over the storm, teleporting, translating the disciples from the three-and-a-half-mile marker in a moment to the other side. Pretty radical. We see Jesus in just two chapters healing people of diseases, liberating people who are afflicted by demons. Jesus is doing some incredible things, some amazing things, let's just say some divine things. And lo and behold, the religious leaders come from Jerusalem, and when you have so many things that could be discussed, could be debated, they're more interested in what? Hand-washing. <laughs> I mean, if I'm coming to Jesus from Jerusalem, I want some clarification on the feeding of the 5,000, or how he walked across the water, or how he's freeing people from demons or causing limbs to grow back. Like, I'm kind of interested in maybe some of these things. But they're focused on washing hands. It's petty and it's silly. And so you have to ask yourself, why? Why are the religious leaders so focused on trying to drum up some accusation that could stick against Jesus and his ministry? when there was so much good happening. And I think it's safe to say that the undercurrent of the conflict is that the religious leaders are looking for a way that they can build a case against Jesus. A plot, as we've mentioned, has already been hatched. An alliance has been put together of the religious leaders and the political establishment. Both groups want Jesus to be silenced, shut up, done away with. And so you can see that the undercurrent of this silliness and this pettiness, uh, this jealousy, is rooted in a desire to build a case against Jesus. You can say that even though we're maybe at the halfway point of our travels through the Gospel of Mark, the cross is coming into focus on the distant horizon. Well, we left things off, verse 24 of Mark chapter 7. From there, Jesus arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. From there, 
two words that mean a lot, at least imply some interesting things. Three things, I think, in specifics that linguistically this transition should perk our attention concerning. From there can be viewed, obviously, as a directional marker. From there. From where? From the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, Bethsaida, Jesus will be leaving. This will be his starting point. And from there, from the north shore, he will be traveling northwest approximately 40 miles to the region, to the cities of Tyre and Sidon, which were located on the eastern banks of the Mediterranean, present-day Jordan. So from there, it can be viewed, obviously, as a directional marker. It can also be, though, an emotional indicator. From there, from where? From the point of emotional exhaustion, Jesus arose and went. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll note that Jesus has been looking for a break, a little R&R, an opportunity to rest and relax, to recharge his batteries. A lot's been going on for Jesus. First, his cousin John has died. And you can imagine the emotional strain that comes with that, plus the constant demands of ministry. Day after day, hour after hour, early mornings, late nights, Jesus has been ministering to people. It takes a toll. You can imagine the anxiety of the coming future, knowing that the cross was soon approaching, coupled with the pressure of preparing the disciples for his inevitable departure. I mean, a lot of things are building up with Jesus, not to mention the growing conflict with the religious right. You can imagine these things taking a toll. And from there, from the point of this emotional and physical exhaustion, Jesus just simply decides they should get away. You can also see this, though, from there as an educational signal. It's a directional marker, an emotional indicator, but it's also an educational signal. Jesus has been teaching the disciples some key lessons. And from there, from the lessons that he's been teaching them, they're going to travel to Tyre and Sidon. Why? Because Jesus is going to continue to build off of the lessons he's already been communicating. Jesus arose and went to Tyre and Sidon. Why? Well, because there was an important lesson that the disciples would need to learn from their journey. It's important to note that this is the first and only time that Jesus travels into this region. The only time we have mentioned of Jesus traveling to Tyre and Sidon is in this moment. And any time when you're studying the life of Jesus that you see him do something for the first and only time, it's often significant. Now, our flow here, the train of thought, is that Jesus has been attacking, contrasting, illuminating some of the core differences between what he's come to do and what's presently existent in the religion of Judaism. He's contrasting his ministry with the ministry of the religious leaders. If you'll remember, in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus does something that's revolutionary, something different. In the Old Testament, in Judaism, If you wanted to encounter God, you had to come to a central location, 
whether it be the promised land, whether it be the temple, whether it be the tabernacle, whether it was the synagogue. If you wanted to encounter God, you had to come. And yet what does Jesus do? Jesus, instead of calling them to come, he equips his disciples and he sends them out. With what? With the gospel, with the good news. In Mark chapter 6, verse 41, Jesus continues this train of uh, radical departure from the norm by praying before a meal. Now, from our Western cultural perspective, that seems like something easy, something that's kind of a no-brainer. And yet, when Jesus looked to heaven and we're told that he blessed the meal before he broke it and distributed it. When Jesus prayed before the meal there at the feeding of the 5,000, it was the first time and only time it had been mentioned in scripture up until this moment of praying, a Jew praying before the meal. And yet what is Jesus saying? The Jews prayed at the end of the meal to thank God for former faithfulness, works. What God had done, they thanked God for. And yet Jesus is doing something different. He's saying it's not about past faithfulness. It's not about former work, but I'm going to thank God for future work, for a future blessing, for a future outpouring, this contrast between works and faith. In Mark chapter 7, verse 9, Jesus continues by rejecting man-made tradition, like the ritual hand-washing. In Mark chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus goes after a bigot. He directly contradicts and undermines the Jewish kosher diet, saying that it's not what comes into a man that defiles a man, but what comes out of a man. Once again, contrasting himself with the norm, with religion. All of these ways in the last two chapters, Jesus has been doing this. But we should note that traveling to Tyre and Sidon at this moment, can be seen as a continuation of this trend. Tyre and Sidon, they were Gentile cities that existed outside of the land of promise. And just as the scribes and Pharisees refused to eat anything deemed unclean, you know they also refused to associate with anyone they deemed unclean? For the scribes and Pharisees traveling outside of the promised land, traveling into Gentile territory intentionally on purpose for rest and relaxation was outside of their context. It was beyond what they would do. Jesus is breaking barriers by stepping into uncharted territory. By traveling into the region of Tyre and Sidon, you should note, that Jesus was really doing three things. First, he was breaking with tradition. Secondly, he was contrasting himself with prejudice. And thirdly, he was highlighting their legalism. Now to understand some of the undercurrent, some of the core issues here, why Jesus picks certain things to pick on, you should go back to the Old Testament to establish some context. 400 years before this moment, when the Jews were allowed to return from Babylon to their homeland, Nehemiah, a great leader, exhorted the people. He encouraged the people that there were three things that they needed to safeguard against. 
three things that had precipitated God judging them that they needed to protect. Three things. First, Nehemiah, at the end of the book of Nehemiah, we see that he exhorts the Jews to keep the Sabbath day holy. And why was this? Well, it's fitting that the Jews had been exiled from the land into Babylon for a period of 70 years. That was not by accident. Because for 490 years previous to that, the Jews had failed to obey the Sabbath year. We talk about the Sabbath day. Work six days, take the seventh off. But there was also a principle in the law known as the Sabbath year where they were to work the land for six years and then trust God for the seventh to provide because they were to allow the land to rest. Well, the Jews, according to history, refused to obey that. So for 490 years, they had failed to obey God concerning the Sabbath year. And so God comes along and says, what? I'm removing you from the land because you failed to obey me for how long? For 70 years. Or the exact amount of time that the Jews had failed to allow the land to rest. And so Nehemiah comes along and he's like, listen, we've made a horrible mistake by not obeying God when it came to the Sabbath. And so moving forward, if you want to make sure or safeguard against future judgment, then what needs to take place? You need to make sure you obey the Sabbath. But then Nehemiah also exhorts, secondly, the Jews to safeguard against their interactions with the Gentiles or the surrounding pagan nations. Once again, student of scripture will know that what was one of the precipitating factors to God judging them is that they had compromised. They had intermarried into the surrounding nations and they had entered into what? As a result, idolatry. They were worshiping false gods. They had allowed their hearts to wander. And so Nehemiah says, listen, obey the Sabbath, but also safeguard against your interactions with the Gentiles because it led to God's judgment. But then thirdly, Nehemiah exhorts them to take seriously the temple and more specifically the events or the activities of the temple. Nehemiah exhorts them to, to maintain the facility, to obey God in regards to the ceremony, to make sure that sacrifices are still taking place, to obey the feasts. There was this emphasis on obeying. This is where we worship God. And we should take it seriously and more specifically with reverence. But here's the deal. What's interesting, Nehemiah gives these exhortations. The Sabbath day, Gentiles, the temple. 400 years transpire. We get to the time of Jesus. And what do we see as three big sticking points of moralism and legalism within the Jews? It's significant because we find that they had taken the Sabbath to an extreme. We see that they had taken their view of the Gentiles to an extreme, and we see that they had taken their view or their place of the temple to an extreme. So is it by accident that we find Jesus specifically targeting these three issues when he's combating the religious leaders concerning their legalism? I think not. We've already mentioned that in Mark chapter 3, Jesus goes out of his way to do what? 
to address their legalistic view of the Sabbath. They had become so focused on making sure that they listened to Nehemiah and they obeyed the Sabbath that they had issued in all of these rules and regulations and it had become burdensome. They had lost the intention behind the day itself. So Jesus addresses the Sabbath in Mark 3. Jesus will address their legalism concerning the temple, won't he? As a matter of fact, Mark chapter 13, Jesus will do this when he says, the temp- in three days the temple will be destroyed, but I'll raise it up. Speaking of that the temple wasn't in and of itself some great, grand, grandiose kind of a thing, but it was more him. That it wasn't the temple that they came to worship, it was the one who resided within the temple, that being God, and they had lost sight of that. But note, in this chapter, in these verses, Jesus is addressing their legalism concerning the Gentiles. You know, it's been said that legalism always takes a good thing too far. Takes a good thing too far. Keeping the Sabbath day holy, safeguarding against moral compromise with the world, being reverent in your worship of God. None of these things are bad in and of themselves. But how far they had taken them, well, that was what was in error. Now, Jesus has just finished teaching his disciples what important lesson. He has just finished teaching them that there is no difference between clean and unclean food. And from there, indicating that now Jesus is going to build off of this idea, he's going to now teach them an important lesson, a related lesson that what? That from God's perspective, okay, there's no difference between clean and unclean food, but there's also no difference between God's perspective of clean and unclean people. That God is going to break down their prejudice and their legalism and their tradition when it came to the Gentiles. You know, it seems that God's continued lessons concerning food and the kosher diet were always symbolic of God's view and the Jews' view concerning people. Here, we find this. Jesus teaches them a lesson about food. And then what does he do? He continues that lesson onto a lesson about people. And in Acts chapter 10, if you uh, followed us this week in our B-sides, we see that with the Apostle Peter, there in Acts 10, there's a lesson about what? Food. Peter, kill and eat. I can't. These This is unclean. I'm a good kosher Jew. And God's like, no, what I have called clean, let no man call common. And then what happens? A lesson about food that follows a call to go to the Gentiles, an application concerning people. Well, we're told that Jesus entered a house. So he travels to Tyre and Sidon. He enters a house. And he wanted no one to know about it, but he could not be hidden. I have some great thoughts about those few words, but we're going to save that to our B-sides. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit, she heard about Jesus, and she came and she fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrian Phoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon 
out of her daughter. Let's discuss for a moment this woman. First, it's obvious that she was a Gentile. Mark is clear that she's a Greek, Syrian, Phoenician by birth. No, no debating. She's a Gentile. Secondly, she had a problem. That seems pretty obvious. Mark tells us that her young daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit, or more specifically, a demon. Basically, this poor little girl was demon-possessed. Matthew tells us in his account that she was severely possessed, that this was kind of an extreme case. The King James Version says that she was vexed. She was miserable. She was tormented. Now, you kind of have to ask yourself, on a side note, how does a young girl, a young girl, become demon-possessed? And I'll be honest, I don't have a specific answer for you, but the one theory that was I did come across that made sense is that within this region, it was traditional and common for people to worship Ashdod. Now, the worship of Ashdod, this pagan god of this particular area, included a lot of Satanism, a lot of witchcraft, a lot of sex, and some very perverted undertones. It could be that at some point within her mother's worship of this pagan god, that her young daughter could have ended up being possessed. We do battle against principalities and powers. There's very real evil in our world, and we would be ignorant not to recognize it. Either way, you can imagine that for this woman, she's struggling on two, two ways. Like first, the, the being handicapped, seeing your, your young child being tormented, being vexed, being miserable, being possessed, and being ill-equipped and unable to do anything about it. Your heart has to break for this woman as she sees the torment and the misery and the illness of her young daughter, and she can't do anything. No doctors can do anything. You can hurt me, but man, it's a whole different kind of pain to watch your child hurt. To watch your, for me, it's, it's my young son. To watch him cry, to watch him in pain. He not being able to tell us what's, what's wrong. And your heart breaks and you want to do something, but you feel handicapped. This woman's dealing with these emotions. On one aspect, her young daughter is being tormented by this demon and she's handicapped to do anything. But could it also be a torment of guilt? On one aspect, if it was indeed the worship of this pagan god Ashdod that brought about the possession of her young girl, well, that's tragic in and of itself. But even then, the thought process of what did I do wrong? What could I have done better? My job is to protect her, to keep her safe. And here she is possessed. I failed. No doubt the guilt and the burden that this woman is carrying. She definitely has a problem dealing with the torment of regret. But we also should note, yes, she was a Gentile. Yes, she had a problem. But she also had a real faith in Jesus. Mark tells us that she heard 
about him. And she came asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. I love that. She heard and she came. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. Faith is always evidenced by action. Once again, a lot more we could discuss, but we're going to leave that to another B-side. So she comes, she hears that Jesus is healing people, liberating people of demon possession. She's at a point of desperation. She comes, her faith is demonstrated in the fact that she came. And we're told that she's asking him, her request She's asking him to cast the demon out. We see faith in the statement. This woman, the phrase to cast out, it indicates that she believed that within one sweeping motion, Jesus could permanently free her daughter, who, mind you, is not present. This is incredible because we see other instances of, of parents in a similar situation, a similar desperation with children possessed, bringing their children to Jesus, asking Jesus to cast out the demon, which was traditional. But this woman, she she doesn't even feel as though that that's necessary, that she has to bring her young child to Jesus for Jesus to be able to cast the demon out. There's faith here. Faith that I don't need to bring my child and you don't need to go to my child. You can just say the word. You can just deal with this in a moment, in one sweeping command, and I know, I believe that my child who's at home will be healed. This woman has a real faith. It began by what she heard. It was demonstrated by the fact that she came, but it's evidenced in her reality that Jesus had power, his word had power, and all he had to do was just say it, and it would happen. But we also see here, that she was persistent. Mark is clear that she kept asking. This word kept, the tense, the verb tense, is that it was that she kept asking, that it was continual, that she was asking and asking and asking and asking with persistence, with repetition. She was determined. Now, what happens moving forward, if we are just left to Mark's account, can in some ways be a bit confusing. And so we're going to do something that we don't often do in our travels through the gospel of Mark, but we're going to reference Matthew's account to try to fill in a bit of the gap here, mainly because it helps us understand what's happening. That was one of our ground rules when we started our travels through the gospel of Mark. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 15, specifically verse 21, but leave your thumb in Mark because we're going to jump right back in a moment. But if you're in Matthew 15, beginning with verse 21, everything as Mark has told us, Matthew basically repeats. We're told, according to Matthew, that Jesus went out from there. He departed. He went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. We're told, behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region. She cried out to Jesus. Matthew gives us a little more of some of the dialogue. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Now, this is where Matthew gives us some more detail. Matthew tells us that Jesus, at this point, he doesn't answer her a word. So this woman comes. She's persistent. She's saying, O Lord, son of David. 
My daughter is possessed and she's asking Jesus to do something. According to Mark, she keeps asking. There's a reputation, a repetition to it, a persistence to it, a determination behind it. Matthew tells us that while this is happening, what's Jesus doing? Jesus has not answered her a word and his disciples end up coming to Jesus and they urge him saying, send her away. For she cries out after us, which was not true. She was crying out after Jesus. But Jesus answered and he said, more than likely probably to the disciples with an earshot of the woman, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And in this moment, she came and she worshiped Jesus saying, Lord, help me. Now, our scene of activity, the flow of the story. This woman comes to Jesus. She's explaining her problem. She's demonstrating a real, undeniable, persistent faith through her determination, Matthew tells us, that Jesus is silent. He doesn't utter a word. And you should note probably two reasons behind Jesus' silence. First, it was a way of testing the woman's faith. It was a way of seeing how persistent she would be. It forced the woman to remain persistent. You know, I think sometimes God ends up not doing a work in our lives because we're not persistent. How quickly is it that we come to Jesus and we ask Jesus to do something? We ask Jesus to heal. We ask Jesus for a job. We ask Jesus to provide a way that we can take care of our families. We come to Jesus with a request, with a problem. And how easily are we deterred by Jesus' silence? You know, sometimes we view Jesus' silence as a no. Or we view Jesus' silence sometimes as indifference. But understand, Jesus always has a purpose behind his silence. And in one aspect, it's often to help us figure out what's really important. You know, I found that certain things that I come to Jesus thinking that I want him to do or deal with, and I get kind of a, I don't get a response, and so I continue to come to Jesus. Over the period of time, I begin to think more about what I'm actually asking only to discover like, wow, I'm glad Jesus hasn't asked me because what I'm asking him of is stupid. <laughs> like sometimes Jesus is silent simply so we can continue to think about what we're really asking. You know, I'll be honest, sometimes like it's glorious for me to think back on the times that I prayed and Jesus answered with a yes. But I'm equally glad that there are times that I came and Jesus just didn't answer me. Because what I was asking was short-sighted and shallow and reactionary. And I'm really glad that he didn't. Like you could think back to girlfriends you might have dated. That you might have broke up with. And you might have come to the Lord saying, Lord, please fix this. And now, a few years down the run, you're like, Lord, I'm so glad that you didn't fix that, that you actually didn't listen to the words coming out of my mouth. Like, thank goodness, hallelujah. Sometimes the Lord, he's silent. 
because he's trying to teach us things. Sometimes it's our faith. Sometimes it's our dedication. It's always our trust that the Lord is always in control and that the Lord's timing is perfect. And so this woman comes and she's crying out to the Lord and she's asking Jesus to come and heal her daughter and to work this miracle and Jesus remains silent. Well, she remains persistent. But secondly, I think Jesus didn't answer her because it allowed her passion and her faith, her request. I think it allowed the disciples to see it. I think if she had come and Jesus had said, go, your daughter's healed, it might have been a lesson that the disciples completely overlooked. But the fact that she keeps coming and Jesus remains silent, what happened? Well, according to Matthew, the disciples get annoyed. Like this woman becomes annoying. And what do they do? After an undefined period of just her howling and weeping and begging and crying out, they're like, Jesus, please put an end to it. But note, send her away. Now we should note that their prejudice is revealed in the way that they handled this woman. You know, they could have, in response to this woman's faith and her passion and her persistence, they could have come to Jesus and said, listen, Jesus, like, I don't know, I don't know what you're doing here, but you should, you, you should work in this woman's life. I mean, she's got a little girl, Jesus. You know, they could have demonstrated a, a, a concern. They could have carried her cause. They could have pled on her behalf. They could have interceded. But what do we see their reaction being? Their reaction is not a care or a heart or a desire for this woman or the child, but they're just annoyed. And so they say, Jesus, get rid of her. Send her away. Now, it's to that statement that Jesus declares, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But the woman remains persistent. She's not to be deterred. And she comes to Jesus. She falls down before, before him. In some ways, she lays prostrate. She's worshiping him. She's exalting him, saying, Lord, help me. And it's at this point, if you flip back to Mark chapter 7, verse 27, it's at this point that Jesus says to her, so Jesus breaks the silence and he speaks to the woman. He says something kind of bizarre. He says, let the children be filled first. For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. What? Like I kind of would have liked Jesus to just maybe had remained silent. Like, this is how you're going to respond to a desperate woman who has a genuine faith who's worshiping you? This is what you're going to say? Please keep something in context. Jesus has gone to Tyre and Sidon for a reason. The reason is to contrast his ministry with that of religion and the religious leaders. It's also to teach his disciples a lesson. And his foreknowledge, I'm sure Jesus knew of this need. He knew of this woman. He knew of this little girl. His heart broke over it. And he goes to Tyre and Sidon for the only time because of this woman. 
and this need to deal with this situation and also to teach the disciples an important lesson. And what's the lesson? Well, Jesus, is, he set up the situation because he wants to teach the disciples a lesson about God and about God's heart towards people. Why? Because Judaism had warped both. Now, to understand what Jesus is saying, the essence of what he's saying, there are two, two things you should consider. First, note the substance of what Jesus said. These two statements where he says, according to Matthew, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then according to Mark, let the children be filled first for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Jesus, the substance here, well, there's two things he's communicating. First, Jesus is affirming a true reality. And the true reality is that the Jewish people the Hebrews, the nation of Israel, had been afforded preferential treatment by God. It's a truth. Jesus is affirming a reality that he had been sent to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So Jesus is affirming this reality. Yes, he came to be king, but note, he came to be a Jewish king. He came to Jews, to the land of Jews. He ministered mainly to Jews. His disciples were Jews. He was condemned by Jews. When it was all said and done, Jesus came to fulfill the promises of a future king sent to the Jews. So Jesus is affirming a reality that the Hebrew people had been afforded by God preferential treatment. They were referred to as the people of God. But secondly, in regards to the substance, he's affirming a true reality, but he's illustrating a sad manifestation of this reality. See, God's preferential treatment of the Jews, the sad manifestation is that it had created amongst the Jews an inflated hierarchical perspective of themselves in context to everyone else that God never intended. Beginning in the book of Genesis, when God called Abraham, out of Ur of the Chaldeans to go to a land of promise. In context, God called the Hebrew people out of the world for a purpose. Why? So that he could use them to reach the world. That was the whole point. He called the Jews to be a holy people set aside for a purpose. A special position for a specific purpose but the problem, the problem is that because God chose the Jews to reach the Gentiles, the Gentiles and the Jews, what happened is that the Jews began to see themselves as being more important. Since God has called us out, since God is going to use us, clearly we're better than them. It was sad. They were called to reach the Gentiles, but they had seen their calling as an indicator that they were better. And the problem is, is that that was a wrong manifestation. So yes, they were God's people. God had called them out. God had a plan and a purpose for them. But in seeing that reality, the Jews had developed prejudice and bias and hatred and self-righteousness towards the very people they were called 
to be a witness too. But also note the tone. The substance is important, but note the tone. Now you might say, how, do, how can you note the tone? They're words. It's, it's kind of like the old trap of like getting really upset that someone wrote something in a text message and you're like, the tone of what you're saying is really irritating to me. It's like, dude, it's words. Like I'm not like communicating tone. I'm communicating words. But there is a tone here that you might miss. The Jews would often refer to the Gentiles using a derogatory term, dog. The Jews didn't have curse words. There were no curse words in the Jewish language. And so they would take common words and then apply a derogatory meaning, that being dog. So they would refer to the Gentiles using the Greek word kion, K-Y-O-N, which means, in addition to dog, a man of an impure mind or one who obeys his own impulses. And we find examples of this in other places. Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus says, not to give what is holy to the dogs or to the man with the impure mind. Paul says in Philippians 3, 2, to beware, cautions the church, to beware of whom? Of dogs, of men with an impure mind. In Revelation 22, verse 15, we're told that outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. And so we see that this term dog does apply to a man of an impure mind, but the Jews applied this to all Gentiles. It was slang. It was racial. But we should point out that Jesus doesn't refer to this woman using this word dog, or K-Y-O-N, but he instead uses the word Carry on, K-Y-N-A-R-I-O-N for the student of scripture, which means little dog. Now, it's very easy to maybe read what Jesus is saying and saying that Jesus is using some slang, some derogatory term about this woman, and to kind of in some ways be, be repulsed by what Jesus is saying. Like, here's a woman with a demon-possessed little girl, and she's coming and she's worshiping. She just wants you to work. There's faith. What's going on? You use a slang term to dismiss her, but Jesus isn't. Jesus is using a term, carry on, that's not derogatory, but it is instead a diminutive term of affection. And referring to the woman as little dog, what is Jesus doing? He's contrasting his view of the Gentiles with the bias of the Jews. The Jews would have seen this woman and called her a dog, but Jesus sees this woman, and what does he say? He calls her a little dog, which is a play on words in so many, in so many ways. But instead of what was maybe used to be derogatory, Jesus is using it. He's turning it to show affection. You call her a dog, but I love her. It's as though Jesus is communicating to the disciples. You view the Jews. You view the world, the lost world, with prejudice and with bias and with contempt. But I view them with love and with compassion and with affection. Verse 28, she answered and she said to him, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs 
under the table eat the children's crumbs. These two words, yes, Lord. In the Greek, it's the masculine noun, meaning he to whom a person or thing belongs. She refers to Jesus using a term that's radical. She's saying, I might be a little dog, but I'm your little dog. I'm yours. You're my Lord. I am what you possess, what you own. This woman, she not only agrees with the substance of what Jesus is saying here, but her faith is incredibly demonstrated by the words that proceed next. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table, they get to eat the crumbs. She's basically saying, Jesus, you're my Lord. If the crumbs are what you're going to give me, then I'll take them. If being a little dog under the table, I'd rather be a little dog under your table than in the world. I'd rather eat crumbs from your table than what the world has to offer. It's a radical statement. It's a passionate statement. But note, a contrast. And this is where I think the whole story begins to tie together. Contrast this Gentile dog with the religious Jews. The contrast is stark. I think for the disciples standing there, the whole moment had to have been reverent. This woman, this woman valued the crumbs that fell to the floor of God's table more than the entire nation of Israel valued the table full of food that had been set up for them by God. It's sad. Jesus, he had come to Israel and he had offered them everything, but they had believed nothing. But Jesus comes to this Gentile woman and he offers her not a thing. At this point, he's offered her nothing but she believes everything. What a sad indictment of religion and these religious leaders. Now, ultimately, why had they rejected Jesus? What was the essence? The essence of, of their rejection of Jesus was their own moral superiority. They didn't accept Jesus as a savior because they didn't think they needed a savior. They thought they were fine. They just needed a king. They had missed the entire point of why Jesus had come, but this woman hadn't. So Jesus says to her, for this saying, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And we're told that when she had come to her house, she found the demon was gone and her daughter was lying on the bed. She's been freed She's been liberated. This phrase, the daughter lying on the bed, is literally that she was laying there at peace quietly. Can you imagine the joy of this woman's heart? I, you know, I, I think it's safe to say she probably continued worshiping God on her way home because she knew what had happened. I think coming into the house and seeing her daughter there, it was not a surprise to this woman. She knew a miracle had taken place. The result of this woman's faith, there, there are two things I want to point out. 
First, it's pretty radical. And I don't know exactly where this goes other than the fact that I think it's an encouragement. But this woman's faith, this mother's faith, saved her daughter. It saved her daughter. It liberated her daughter. Now, I'm not here to say that the faith of a parent can be attributed to a child. The Bible's pretty clear that every child at some point is going to have to make a decision to follow Jesus. But parents, take heart that I believe that Jesus sees the faith of a parent. And in some times, and in some instances, and in some ways, Jesus will work in the life of your child because of your faith. That if you have a prodigal, that if you have a child that's wayward, that if you've given up hope, remain persistent. Continue to come to Jesus. Continue to ask. Continue to seek that the Lord would break through the darkness and reach into the life of your child to free them and to liberate them. Whether they're a little girl or a grown adult, parent, don't give up. Remain persistent. God worked, Jesus worked in the life of this little girl because of what? The faith of the little girl? No, it was the faith of her mother. And for you mothers and for you fathers, continue to have faith, continue to remain persistent. Because let me tell you, the one person that loves your child more than you do is Jesus. But there's another thing I want to point out and we'll conclude with this thought concerning the woman's faith. Something that, that you probably don't get or, or wouldn't recognize from a cursory reading of, of this particular passage. Because I think that this woman's faith, yes, it impacted the life of her daughter and her family. But I think the impact of her faith went much further than this. Jesus crossed a boundary. Jesus crossed a a barrier. Jesus went and reached this woman, a woman that religion had wrote off, a woman that religion would have had nothing to do with, a woman that religion would have kept its distance from. Jesus leaves the land of promise. He goes to Tyre and Sidon because he loves this woman who was lost. And he wanted nothing more than to free her and to save her and to work in her life. And to her credit, she heard. And she came and Jesus worked. It always happens. Jesus loved her. Didn't have prejudice. Didn't keep an arm's reach. And that changed her perspective of people and the world. I think she became an advocate, an ambassador, a missionary. You don't have to turn there, but in Acts chapter 21, verse 3, we're given a small detail. We're told Luke, the author of Acts, tells us that he and Paul, he's traveling with Paul, he tells us that they sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there, their ship was to unload her cargo. And then Luke tells us something interesting. And finding disciples there. Now that's significant for a couple reasons. First, the, the vernacular that Luke uses denotes kind of a surprise. That they get to Tyre, the ship's unloading cargo, and finding disciples. They didn't know there were disciples there. 
it was like they got there expecting it to just be a layover. Come to find out, lo and behold, there's a church. There are believers that they connected with and they prayed with and they fellowshiped. A whole group of women and their children. Interesting. But what's significant about this is that there is no record of Paul or any of the early missionaries that we have mention of in the book of Acts ever visiting Tyre, ever taking the gospel to Tyre between this event in Mark chapter 7 and Paul's boat docking there in Acts chapter 21. Now, is it entirely possible that there were other Christians that had made their way to Tyre and had planted the church that we just don't have mention of in the book of Acts. Absolutely. But I think you can also say that it is, is it a reality that could it have been this woman whose faith had manifested itself and had begun to impact an entire town, that she had gone back to Tyre with an experience, an encounter of Jesus Christ that had changed her life. That whereas religion had wrote her off, Jesus had broken the darkness and reached in and had changed her and worked in her life. And she goes home and guess what? She begins to share. And she begins to preach. And she begins to communicate the good news. That when people start asking, your little girl, what happened? How did, how did this take place? That she could point to Jesus. Guys, we are all Gentiles. Literally, we're all Gentiles, unless you're a Jew and I just didn't know it. We're all Gentiles, but spiritually, we were all Gentiles. That religion left condemned. And yet, aren't you glad that Jesus crossed a barrier? crossed a boundary, entered a new territory, and worked in you. But note that he works in you. Why? Because he also wants to work through you. It's true that healthy sheep reproduce. Are you a healthy sheep? Hey, we teach the Bible to see Jesus work in your heart and your life. Why? So that you can leave with that experience and with that encounter and with that testimony to impact the world just like this woman did. And so, Father, with that thought,